this uh, topic was initially presented as a video webinar. So for the best experience, we would recommend you to explore the link below for the video webinar. Everyone, uh, this is Faiz Wahid. Uh, and the regional head uh, Europe at Sagacious IP. Um, I'm very delighted to welcome you all here today. Um, and I'm also very glad that you chose to spend your valuable time with us on this webinar. Um, the current times are unprecedented and uh, I hope that you are all doing well and uh, you know having a wonderful time. Uh, the topic of our webinar today uh, is uh, to make no mistake about how uh, and to identify how do US firms ensure compliance with export control regulations when offshoring patentability searches. Now this topic is um, uh, is, is quite uh, deep, uh, technical, uh, but uh, we would like to bring uh, to it a perspective uh, from the expertise of the people who have driven such projects uh, successfully. We have seasoned experts from the Search Center, a US-based search firm, as well as Sagacious IP on our speaking panel today. So I will now move on to introduce uh, them, but uh, before I do that, um, uh, let me just also introduce uh, Sagacious and Search Center uh, in a quick summary. Um, Sagacious is an award-winning IP and innovation consulting firm that uh, has been enabling value creation in the innovation and IP ecosystem for the last almost 12 years. Uh, with a 300 member uh, team in uh, US, Canada, Europe, uh, India, China, and Japan, uh, Sagacious has uh, had the opportunity to serve prominent IP law firms, Fortune 500 companies, startups, investors, universities, and also other players in the innovation ecosystem uh, spread across uh, 65 different countries and Searches have been conducted in over 16 languages. So the company works very closely with US-based companies and uh, is supporting their patentability search operations. Um, our other speaker uh, is from uh, Search Center. Uh, search Center has been uh, providing expert patent searching services to the worldwide IP community since 2012, again. And all of the patent search professionals at the search center are, are US citizens working exclusively in the continental United States. Uh, together, these two uh, have a lot of in-depth experience uh, to address this particular topic. So let me introduce our first speaker uh, of the day. Our first speaker is uh, Mr. Anand Kataria. Uh, Anand is the co-founder and CEO of uh, Sagacious Research. Uh, he started his career with Suzuki India in their R&D department and uh, he has been in the IP research field since 2005. Uh, currently he is based in Toronto and is responsible for the North American business for Sagacious um, and his North American customers include US law firms, companies, um, you know, who order, order thousands of patentability searches with Sagacious every year. Welcome to the webinar, Anand. Yeah, thank you, Fez. My pleasure to be here. Great, glad to glad to have you. And uh, our uh, our second speaker uh, today is uh, uh, Mr. Ben Peslo. Uh, ben is the co-founder and director at uh, Search Center LLC. Uh, he's a U.S. Uh, patent attorney 
and uh, he's in the business of patent search for the last uh, 20 plus years. Uh, he's based in the US and uh, his local team uh, delivers expert patent searching solutions to, to clients. Ben, welcome to the webinar. Hi, thank you very much for having me. Thanks, thanks Ben for being with us. Um, so today, um, today's topic, uh, many people believe that uh, achieving compliance is an expensive affair and it definitely incurs a lot of costs, more than the costs of uh, creating a workaround. Uh, however, if handled rightly, uh, one can achieve cost savings while still staying compliant. And the main agenda for this webinar today is to uh, empower you uh, with a understanding uh, to be able to save costs while complying with export control regulations in the, in the US. And to do that, we have broken this webinar down in two sections. Uh, the first section addresses how do we know what is to be controlled? And the second part is around how do we comply uh, with the export control regulations while outsourcing the patentability searches. So uh, post addressing these two uh, questions from our speakers, we will move on to a Q&A session. I invite you to keep sharing your questions as and when you have them during the course of the session. And you can share the questions via the GoToWebinar question box on the, I think, the right side of this presentation window. Um, I will pick up those questions and ask them to our speakers at the end of the presentation. So please uh, feel free to write down your questions uh, during the course of the presentation. And let us now get started. And before we move on to the the uh, you know presentations, let me quickly uh, ask Anand um, to give his initial remarks and and talk about uh, you know what is uh, an export. Anand, over to you. Yeah, thanks, Fez. Uh, uh, Fez, an export is uh, any item that is sent from the United States to a foreign destination, regardless of the method used for the transfer. Now, the term item here uh, has a broad coverage and covers everything ranging from clothing, building material, automotive parts, electronic components, right up to retail software packages, design plans, technology, technical information, and all these things. Uh, but in the context of our topic, it essentially boils down to technical information. Um, and the phrase, uh, regardless of the method uh, used for transfer, uh, again, it covers any modes of transmitting such uh, technical information, including sending it over email and other content sharing platforms like Dropbox, Google Drive, etc. For those in the audience here who have outsourced patentability searches, or pretty much if they've outsourced any service outside of the US, they will appreciate that in any offshoring process, the information is usually exchanged by email apps or such document sharing platforms or using on-premise secure storage systems. Uh, but all of these means they are considered export. And, and quite interestingly, you know, uh, anything published on a website that's accessible outside of the US is also an export. So unknowingly, you know, by posting any technical information, even in even uh, if we post it on our Facebook page or LinkedIn, Twitter, our blogs, or any other social media, we're actually exporting information on a daily basis. Uh, 
and you know even though these exports uh, are like these posts are exports but we kind of engage uh, in them very freely so yeah this is broadly how i would kind of uh, give a take on exports Right. Thanks. Uh, yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Anand. Uh, uh, I think the next question arises out of uh, uh, that: How does the U.S. government actually control the export? And let me invite Ben's response to this question. So, Ben, could you could you help us address this question? Uh, thank you, Travis. Uh, so, the U.S. government export laws security interests of U.S. foreign policy by control and the export of certain technologies and goods. Generally speaking, these interests are military related. And as you can see uh, from the next slide here, these interests also extend to such areas as promoting regional stability and preventing crime. Now, one important aspect to keep in mind is that specific technology related to these security interests may be legal to export to one country, but may be forbidden from export to another country. Fortunately, the agencies involved in enforcing U.S. export control laws provide guidelines for evaluating which technologies are eligible for export and to which countries. Um, now, Nate spoke earlier about uh, what constitutes an export. And we saw clearly that technical information qualifies as an export under the law. Another important question is, where does the export take place? Um, we could go on to the, to the next slide here. Uh, if it's transferred to a foreign national on U.S. soil, is this considered an export? Uh, and the answer is yes. The U.S. export law provides for so-called uh, deemed export. And as you can see in the definition here, no sale is required. Uh, a mere simple release of information is, is sufficient to uh, for a national recipient in the U.S. for the uh, transaction to qualify as an export. Uh, right. Yeah. So, um, so I, I, I think uh, here uh, the question uh, arises. Um, uh, of course, we understand what uh, the U.S. government uh, uh, calls exports, and and how do how do they want to control it? But how do one uh, by themselves? Uh, <clears throat> identify you know what what we uh, should control so how do we know what is to be controlled and anant uh, let me ask you to share your views on on that yeah um, first today almost all businesses have an international flavor to them so even if something is designed in the us and sold in the us there are high chances that it's being manufactured in china mexico vietnam sri lanka india or you know any of uh, such other low-cost manufacturing countries so export of information in the form of product drawings bill of materials etc is happening daily 
and if if not a lot of it then at least some of it is happening you know without anyone checking if that export is controlled or not and this happens mostly because of the unstructured and decentralized nature of such information sharing uh, but it's easier as in even this information can be checked for control just by simply passing it through a five question uh, five question text and you know fortunately in the context of offshoring patentability searches uh, the information or the invention disclosures are already captured in a structured way and mostly as a part of a company-wide process so it's even uh, even easier to apply this you know five question test that we'll come to or what that we see on our slide right now uh, as to you know uh, check whether a disclosure is controlled or not so these questions as you can see uh, are what is the destination country who will receive the technology who will benefit from it and the fourth question is what's the end use of the item and uh, what is the technology is it controlled or not Now there are three uh, sets of uh, uh, you know key sets of U.S. export control uh, regulations, and they are governed by three U.S. government agencies: uh, OFAC or Office of Foreign Assets Control, which is governed by Department of Treasury; then ITAR, which is governed by the Department of State; and then EAR, uh, which is governed by the Department of Commerce. Uh, now OFAC. Uh, prohibits transactions with countries, entities, and persons that are subject to boycotts, trade sanctions, and embargoes. ITAR controls uh, transfers of defense articles and provision of defense services. So it focuses uh, on inherently military technologies. Uh, EAR, it controls the exports of commodities, software, equipment, and technology. So this is uh, the most interesting or you know uh, the, the, the the grayest kind of uh, area here where uh, you know the dual use items or items which may appear to be uh, of civilian application can also fall under control and that's where you need to check uh, so as we go through the five question uh, test or five questions to determine if a technology is under control or not we'll address all these three sets of uh, regulations so uh, moving on to uh, the first question what is the destination country uh, so with reference to OFAC now OFAC does not actually maintain a specific list of countries that US persons cannot do business with however they do list all the sanction programs on their website and our team briefly reviewed these sanctions and also refer to the compilations of such country lists by various universities and uh, accordingly you know prepared this list of countries uh, that you'll now see on your screen yeah so and and these are the countries that have some sort of sanctions applied to them and if you see there's Cuba, Iran, North Korea, Sudan, and Syria, they have stars marked uh, with the names. So they have comprehensive sanctions uh, 
you know applied to them whereas others have limited or some sort of targeted sanctions uh, now an ofac license can still be obtained on a case-by-case -case basis for exports to even these countries like except for the start ones i would say uh, but you know as a rule of thumb if a country is not listed here then the ofac country level sanctions do not apply to it uh, the important point to note here is that from the perspective of outsourcing patentability searches uh, to India, we kind of see that uh, OFAC sanctions uh, do not pose a concern as India is not a part of the list. Then um, with reference to ITAR, now they maintain country specific defense export, con you know, export policies. Uh, again, we obtained the list of these countries uh, for which such policies exist and have been listed on the uh, directorate of defense trade controls website uh, and you know similarly similar to what we did with ofac we also went through uh, compilations of such lists by uh, universities and and accordingly we prepared the list that you see on the screen here uh, as a rule of thumb if a country is not listed here then we are fine at the country level with respect to itar export control regulations uh, from from the con in the context of patentability searches outsourcing to India again we uh, we see India is not on the list so we have a green signal here as well. Uh, for EAR uh, export administration regulations they don't have a separate list but they highlight the the five countries that had comprehensive sanctions uh, in the OFAC they list those countries as the countries of concern. So in summary, from all three of these regulations, we've obtained a finite list of around 30 countries exporting to which can be a concern, but India is not one of them. And uh, that helps us get a favorable answer to question one out of our five question test you know, for outsourcing uh, searches to India or for you know, checking a disclosure for, uh, uh, for export control. Uh, I'll ask Ben to take up the next question uh, on our uh, question. Oh, thank you, Anand. So we have, we've covered the question, what is an export and, and, and what country uh, are capable of receiving the export? It's, it's also important to consider uh, whether a certain technology may be exported um, to ask who will be receiving a benefit from the export. Uh, once this person or entity is identified, the OFAC provides a site shown here where the person or entity may be checked uh, against a blocked person list. Um, as if we could go to the next slide. Uh, the OFAC also provides a country specific site for checking whether certain persons or entities are on the OFAC sanctions list. Um, this is on the, uh, on, the, on the following slide, thank you. Um, the ITAR also sets forth a list of debarred parties and a list of such parties is provided um, at the, the list on the next slide. And similarly, uh, the EAR provides a list of entities subject to 
the license requirements as a, as a rule. Uh, moving on to the to the next questions in the five question test, I'll pass it on to Anita. Right, right. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for uh, covering the uh, aspects of the entities uh, to whom the export is is going or who are benefiting from the export. So, uh, yeah, so there are these uh, uh, portals provided by these three entities where one can quickly go and search uh, the entity name and see if there's uh, some, uh, if, if these are in the list of DBARD uh, entities. Uh, fortunately, none of the key entities you might hear about in the IP space appear to be in such lists. So, uh, as a rule of thumb, broadly, working with a patent firm outside of us or you know sending a patent search project outside of the us uh, with respect to question number two and three also uh, if if that thing is going out to india you kind of uh, we're already in the gray in, in the green sorry uh, now the next questions uh, in our five question test are what is the end use of the item and you know what information technology or technical data is involved and is it controlled so uh, itar maintains uh, a list called uh, us munitions list uh, and it's a list of defense articles or defense services so if a technology pertains to defense uh, it should not be exported period that's that's a, a rule of thumb uh, we, we can we can take a look at the u.s munitions list uh, categories on the next slide so uh, as you'll see you know most of these categories uh, are you know pure play defense categories uh, see firearms guns ammunition launch vehicles uh, and so on and so forth so officially it's it's not that such technologies cannot be exported at all they can be but then you'll need an export control license to do that in the context of our presentation i would advise keeping you know those technologies that pertain to any of these defense categories within the us uh, you know just for the sake of uh, sending it out for searching there's no reason to go through uh, a license program so we'll uh, we will just keep all those things within us not send them out at all now i'd like to highlight two categories here uh, the uh, first one uh, category seven here which is named ground vehicle so the name of this category is slightly misguiding as in itar's context it only covers defense related ground vehicles and not regular ground vehicles like commercial cars trucks etc so uh, you know, technologies related to regular vehicles are still free to go out of the U.S. Uh, uh, in, in the context of ITAR's uh, regulations. Now, the second category that I want to highlight is category 13, uh, materials and miscellaneous articles. And you'll see that, you know, it covers cryptographic devices for military or intelligence. Now, here, my view is that even though category talks about military cryptography, it's advisable to keep any kind of cryptography related inventions in the US and you know not export or outsource them. 
So in summary, uh, with respect to ITAR, as long as the technology in question is not a defense technology, our question four to five, or four and five are favorably answered, uh, you know, with respect to uh, screening and invention. Uh, while at the same time, as I said, I would advise that any invention related to cryptography is still kept in US. Uh, then uh, moving to EAR, uh, EAR covers an interesting set of regulations, the ones with dual use. So uh, even a technology that may appear to be a non-defense or a civil technology uh, may still be controlled under EAR if you know Department of Commerce has identified such technology to have a dual use. They maintain a commerce uh, control list which has 10 categories, uh, category zero to category nine that you see here. And then there's another category called 99, which is uh, straight away, no license required category. Now the silver lining here is uh, that most of the apparently civil technologies will not require a license. Uh, what you see on your screen is a snapshot uh, from a document from BIS, uh, Department of Commerce which lists uh, that most exports from US do not require a license and may be exported under the designation NLR, which means no license required. And uh, there's a simple decision process that can you know, help easily determine if a technology requires a license with respect to EAR or not. I'll, I'll now ask, uh, uh, you know, I'll invite Ben to take it forward and you know, elaborate the export control decision tree uh, for EAR. Thank you, Dan. So here we have the export control decision tree uh, provided by the Bureau of Industry and Security uh, for compliance with the Export Administration regulations. Now, the decision tree is a guide to help determine if a so-called dual-use item is eligible for export to a given country. As Anand had mentioned earlier, dual-use technology is a technology that, while innocuous in one application, may violate U.S. export laws in another application. The first step is to determine if the export is subject to the EAR. To uh, and to reiterate, this this tree is for use when the proposed export is clear of, of OFAC and ITAR concerns. Now, once you've determined uh, if the export is subject to the year, the next consideration is whether the item is classified under an export control classification number. This is essentially a two-number designation where the first number is a broad category and the second number is a, is a subcategory. Uh, relevance to the technology, analogous to a, a genus-species relationship. The BIS provides a commerce control list index to help identify the ECCN. Once the proposed export has an ECCN, the next step is to determine if the item is subject to a, a general prohibition. If not, the ECCN is checked against the commerce country chart. Uh, this chart is then used to determine if the item is eligible for export to the proposed country of export. As we 
see in the in the chart here. Uh, yes, the item instead is designated as a no license required item and maybe export. If not, then the next step is determine if a license exception is available. If um, no exception is available, an application for a license uh, may be submitted to the BIS through their website, which we show on the, on the next slide. Uh, and the, an application is made through what they call the Security Simplified Network Application Process, or, or SNAP-R. Now, as, a, as a, something worth repeating here, as a general rule of thumb, most exports do not require a, a license, either because the item is not on the commerce control list or the item is on the control list, but there's no prohibition from sending the item to the destination country. Uh, so now that um, we've discussed the U.S. export law generally, um, we could take a look at some specific examples uh, relevant, uh, particularly relevant to the, to the IP community. Um, yeah, so Ben, thanks for uh, Ben and Anant. In fact, uh, thanks for uh, juggling between the, the lengthy slides and really making it easy for uh, getting it out to, to, the, to the audience in terms of uh, how to really look at export control regulations uh, uh, and, and what they represent. Uh, and probably coming now to the second part of our presentation in terms of uh, you know, outsourcing of patentability searches. So how do we map these uh, export control regulations uh, in the context of outsourcing of patentability searches? So I request uh, Ben uh, to, to continue with the presentation and, and address that, uh, that point. So thank you, Gus. Um, speaking generally, a company interested in, in outsourcing uh, the technology uh, ben, can I slightly intervene and uh, request if you could do something with the mic? I got a message from one of the attendees that uh, uh, there is a slight echo in, in the voice uh, from, from your end. Oh, okay. Uh, how may I address that? Um, yes. I can. Uh, let me see if I can adjust my mic here. Yeah, we can continue. So a company uh, facing the opportunity uh, with the opportunity to outsource a patentability search um, has, a, has a choice to either do an export compliance in-house or to hire a, a third party uh, to perform an export control compliance review of the disclosure. Now. In the partnership uh, between Sagacious and Search Center, we have an export control screening process that includes a review by a third-party export control analyst. If generally, if the, the technology is not clearly eligible for export to Sagacious in India, then the technology will not be exported and the, and the search will be performed in, in the US by Search Center.
I think uh, um, if if this is uh, possible, then that releases a lot of burden from uh, you know the inventor uh, organization to be able to identify which ones are to be uh, uh, you know searched within the U.S. and which ones uh, can be sent out to India. And I think that's where the cost uh, optimization point uh, comes into picture. So uh, probably let me ask Anand to elaborate a little bit more on the cost optimization part uh, that, uh, you know, how that cost optimization can be achieved with this simple yes, no decision making if implemented at the time of, uh, you know, outsourcing the patentability search. Right. Anand, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, thanks, Fez. Uh, Fez, uh, uh, as, as Ben mentioned, thanks, Ben, for uh, indicating it very clearly. Uh, so it's actually, very right just this decision box so it's essentially uh, you know all the invention submissions that are happening if you have a way to screening them uh, just by asking these five questions that we just discussed uh, and it's easy it's very straightforward it's not a complicated process now many companies do it in-house uh, we work with several companies fortune 500s and uh, various sized companies who outsource patentability searches and the disclosures we receive, they're already pre-screened. There's a, you know, there's an answer to these questions that's already there in, in those disclosures. And they've been identified as NLR and that's why they've been sent out. So you're not risking anything, you're just sending the NLR out. So if it's not exactly NLR, any gray area, just keep it in. Don't, don't send it out to, uh, to India. And uh, this is one way you have your in-house process set up. So at the time of invention submission, maybe, the inventor uh, answers a few more questions and that helps in this automatic determination. Or let's say the inventors are submitting everything, information comes to the IP department and there's a process instituted at the IP department where you know uh, someone there is answering those questions, those five questions uh, and you know getting that screening. So once that happens, you just send it out to uh, India or to US and you, know, you are optimizing your cost that way. Now, what we've tried to do is we've tried to take an example uh, here, an example scenario to showcase the kind of cost benefits that can be obtained. Uh, now, uh, so so let's say, uh, you know, in, in this example, we've uh, uh, taken the scenario of a company that gets 500 disclosure submissions and, you know, wants to get searches done on all of them. Uh, in the table, the second column depicts the option when the company chooses to get all the searches done in US and hence stay export compliant. So now the key thing is uh, being export compliant, 100% export compliant, uh, export control compliant and uh, optimizing cost in, in that manner. So let's say if you're not using a hybrid onshore offshore searching model, and you're doing everything in the US, you are compliant. And you know the, the column number two uh, depicts that scenario where all the 500 searches are done in the U.S. and uh, we've we've taken uh, you know the U.S. patentability search price or cost to be $1,200 just for the sake of calculation here, and overall spend comes out to be $600,000. And now uh, let's say the chief IP counsel of this company you know attended this webinar, found the idea interesting, and you know implemented this hybrid onshore offshore search process 
coupled with uh, with an export control screening process. And uh, you know, uh, from from there, uh, what let's say in in the screening process, let's say it's determined uh, in in column three, you'll see a scenario where the screening process determines that 250 out of uh, these 500 searches are uh, NLR and can be sent out to India. So just by doing that, uh, they are able to save uh, $112,500 out of those $600,000 or around 19%. Uh, we've considered that the, uh, you know, the in search, uh, an equivalent search in India would cost around $600. And, uh, and we've also considered that uh, the screening process is not implemented in-house. It's being done by a third party. And that third party has a fixed cost of around $75 per screening, per disclosure. So, so you are still compliant because all the disclosures go to this third party. They screen it. They send it to US search company, for example, search center. If it's not NLR, if it's NLR, it goes to uh, an Indian search firm, for example, Sagacious. And just by doing this, uh, you save uh, 19%. And nothing changes in terms of process at your end. You've not implemented anything in-house. You've not changed anything. It's just that the email that you were sending the searches to uh, has changed from a US search provider to an export control uh, screening agency. And in the third scenario, which is in the last column, uh, we've kind of uh, we changed the assumption here you know from our experience we realized that around uh, you know 70 to 90 percent of invention disclosures uh, do fall in the nlr category so what we have tried to do here is that uh, considered a scenario where uh, almost 380 out of these uh, uh, yeah i think it, yeah 380 out of these 500 searches are to be done in india and 120 in us and then you know the savings jump up to $190,000 or almost 31%. So yeah, this is just an, uh, uh, an example fast, uh, just to just to, you know, kind of highlight the kind of savings that are possible. Over to you. Right. Now, this is great. I think uh, this brings us uh, uh, to a good conclusion in terms of uh, you know what we started with uh, to understand export control law um, you know in the us but at the same time also be able to map it to patentability uh, searches um, the outsourcing there and how do you really um, you know achieve cost uh, benefit uh, out of it so uh, let me ask uh, anant uh, you a question uh, which one of the attendees has posed, uh, uh, I think it's specifically tied to this particular question, or maybe Ben could take it up. Um, uh, like it, you talked about the uh, the model which uh, uh, Sagacious and Search Center has in terms of having this export control screening uh, agency in place to be able to filter out the uh, or make this decision for the for the end client. So if this uh, uh, if there is a request for a search and uh, will, will the user be informed uh, whether the search will be done in the US or in India and uh, will this be done before or after the search is done? Uh, ben, would you uh, like to take this question? Yes, I, I would be happy to take take that question. Thank you, Fez. Um, 
So the, the answer uh, to that question is we, we try to provide a, as transparent a process as possible. So once we learn of how the convention disclosure has been categorized, categorized we would immediately convey that, that information um, to the client. Um, assuming that we had um, the, uh, the go-ahead to move forward with the search, um, either way we would we would provide the information and then and then move forward with the search or conversely uh, we would suggest we would we would convey the information and then determine if uh, we had authorization then to move forward with the search uh, only in the US if if the invention is is, cat, is not categorizable as an, as an NL, NLR search right uh, then I think that uh, answers the question. So uh, let me ask you, uh, you know, go ahead and um, uh, get into some of the other questions that are flowing in. Uh, but uh, uh, prior to that, you know, let me also uh, take the opportunity to uh, to ask uh, our, uh, attendees to to share their questions in the in the window, um, and uh, also, uh, you know, this particular session is one of the series one in the series of ICT searching webinars and uh, there are more upcoming webinars I'll talk about them uh, also after uh, you know we have these Q&A's uh, identified and, and answered from our speakers so uh, this question I think I'll pose to Anant um, you gave an example of a company with uh, you know 500 searches achieving cost benefit uh, with the screening procedures uh, kept in place. Uh, can a company uh, uh, also achieve uh, the same kind of or you know similar kind of benefits uh, at lower volumes of searches? Uh, I think I would say I would say yes. Uh, it's as long as the you know number of uh, searches are let's say, I can't put uh, a number to it, but let's say a reasonable number such that engaging an export control agency is possible, then yeah, it's the same savings because you know all of these things, the three entities or the three, three components to the overall cost, they are fixed. So the screening is $75, uh, the searching for uh, US is a fixed price, searching in India is a fixed price. And assuming that the company that's trying to institute such a process is is not in the defense sector, where probably 100% of their searches would still be required to be done in US. And you know, if if let's say it's any regular company that we that we see, maybe it's, it's a software company, a new SaaS company, or a new you know a household product that has come out. Uh, you know, any any companies in in general that we see around in the market. So if uh, those companies want to set up a process and let's say if they have only 50 or 100 searches a year that they want to get done. So theoretically it's possible for them to have the same benefits that we've shown here in the table. Uh, that's good to, good to know. I think uh, that would be a question, you know, that uh, arises in the minds of many um, that, you know, certain times the cost benefits are very easy to achieve at volumes. Uh, but uh, at uh, smaller numbers, uh, they might uh, uh, not not exist. 
so it's good to know that uh, someone can expect uh, some some benefits uh, uh, you know even at lower volumes um, now one question i have uh, is for ben um, ben does having a non disclosure agreement uh, in place will uh, with with the service provider will that replace the need for such a elaborate uh, screening process to be in place um not not necessarily um depending on on the contents uh of the nda if it's it's if it's part of a, a larger contract requiring performance of of the search within the us uh then uh, and and export therefore export control uh, being addressed, uh, th then perhaps, but uh, but but in and of itself, um, no. The the answer is, uh, you know, it would depend on the the contractual uh, language. Okay. So um, and maybe this follow up question to you, Ben. Again, um, um, you know, th this person says that uh, they manage uh, outsourced searching for for the company. And if they send all the searches to a U.S. search company, uh, are they automatically in compliance with the U.S. export law? No, this is this is a good question. Um, the answer, not necessarily. If uh, if this is of a concern, for example, if if your invention disclosures include technologies that that may have a military application, for example, encryption technology that may be subject to a ban on export then the downstream activities of your search provider, even if it's a U.S. search provider, uh, if your provider, say, subcontracting to foreign nationals, this may result in a violation of, of the U.S. export law. But the important point here is to verify that the provider is maintaining the technology with, uh, with U.S. personnel or or to verify that the provider has an export control compliance process in place uh, that will prevent the technology from, from being disclosed um, improperly. Right. Yeah, they, that, that does make sense, yeah. So, um, Anand, here is a question for you. Um, you know, you talked about a company needing, uh, you know, the cost-benefit analysis. That's the question that's coming to you again. Uh, you talked about uh, the searches that are being, uh, uh, you know, outsourced. Um, within the IP industry, you know, there are uh, a number of things that are outsourced. You know, patentability searches, invalidities, freedom to operate, and, and, and so on. And I'm sure you're doing a, a number of such services yourselves. Um, is there a specific set of uh, services which uh, really uh, get affected by uh, uh, for export control, or is it applicable to uh, in, in as a blanket to all uh, kind of outsourcing that involves that particular kind of technology? Well, thanks, Faz. I think this is a very very good question, and I think we should have addressed this uh, in the beginning, uh, you know, during the presentation itself. But it's a very good question. Uh, and quite interestingly, you know, let's say if there's uh, a patent that's already filed, and now the applic—I mean, patent application is filed, and then 18 months have elapsed, and the application is published. Now, as the application is published, is it is accessible on the USPTO website? It's out there in the market. Now, any service that pertains to things that are already published. Uh, 
that does not uh, i would say that does not fall under the export control umbrella uh, if if us patent office has published a document that means it's already in, in a way it's already exported it's uh, available for everyone worldwide to look at so invalidity searches if you want to get a patent invalidated you know that's 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 totally green you can just send it out anyone in india or elsewhere can do it for you uh, ftos again yeah you are disclosing some information about a product uh, but as long as let's say uh, that product is let's say out there in the market so for example if that's where what you're disclosing or you what you what you want someone to search against uh, is not something that's absolutely new and you know not out there in the market again there could be chances of export control there but broadly from my understanding of you know working with uh, companies and doing ftos for them uh, this is pretty much green ftos can be sent out uh, and landscapes again uh, they are green you just you just want some research and you tell people okay this is a technology area and i want some research done on it and you know firms like us go out look for uh, patents and scientific li literature in that area and, and report it back so all these things are again green pretty much it's uh, it's the patentability search part that falls uh, under this uh, you know export control uh, compliance umbrella does that answer your question to some extent is did i miss something first so i hope it does uh, for the audience to uh, to understand so yeah i think so i think it was very pertinent to know that uh, because when we talk about uh, uh, you know searches we can very easily uh, misunderstand it for uh, you know all the kind of searches that we do uh, in in the ip world and but thanks for making that clarification that uh, things uh, which are already disclosed uh, uh, may not necessarily uh, be uh, impacted by 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 this uh, screening process and and probably that brings me to the next uh, question that i have for ben um, and that's related to the screening uh, process um, you talked about uh, ben uh, about the no, no license required uh, you know screening procedure um, and you explained it in one of the slides very beautifully. Um, and you mentioned about a third party, um, you know, export control compliance agency. So the question is around uh, whether uh, a third party is really needed. Uh, can someone do it in-house or uh, can the search provider do it by himself? Uh, what is the real need of uh, having a third party in place? Oh, that's um, another good question. Thank you, Fez. Uh, the third party uh, is in place, um, particularly for volume um, and for and for questions where we have um, a lot of searches or a lot of technologies in, with the, involved in the search that may have dual use, and it becomes somewhat of an administrative load um, to, to perform that um, in-house. And it, it's in that scenario that the benefit of using a third party uh, really comes into play. Also, um, it, just as a as a as a good business practice, as a best practice, to have a a disinterested party um, is is always a good idea. Um, and in this in that scenario if you have say uh, maybe a, a questionable area it'd be it'd be better to rely 
on the on the disinterested uh, third party expert. Right. So, and this uh, third party expertise is uh, provided uh, uh, by uh, uh, you know uh, uh, multiple agencies out there, or is it some special type of expertise that someone should have? Uh, this 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 we use a, 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 a our third party that we we use is uh, has a special expertise um, navigating the navigating the rules um, in house um, say for uh, somebody with low volume of searches it may not be worth the effort to gain the expertise necessary to uh, to make these decisions. Uh, particularly, particularly when you have uh, sensitive technologies uh, involved in in the determination. Okay, yeah, I mean the model is pretty interesting in terms of uh, how you're able to implement it uh, external to the organization, but uh, uh, ensure that uh, there is a third party involvement which can take the liability of uh, you know the risks involved and um, uh, i think that could be a very a useful solution for for companies to to follow up with um, what does one have to do in order to implement this uh, solution uh, you know or engage uh, uh, you know in the solution so is it just uh, that uh, they start sending it out uh, to to this agency screen it and then uh, the, the, based on the agency's decision, then decide whether to keep it uh, uh, with a provider uh, in in the U.S. and or or to export it out. And how is the engagement uh, uh, or the collaboration between Sagacious and uh, Search Center going to streamline this whole process? Yes. Well, um, so so that's uh, the first part. Of the question is 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 exactly right. The regardless of whether the the search uh, is evaluated for export control compliance um, with the with the with the originator with the customer client um, or with search center uh, sagacious the the process is basically the same it goes to the third party for clearance now in the case of um, our partnership the search um, obviously comes to search center first and then and then out to the third party and then once we receive the nor indication then the then the search uh, is cleared and and sent off uh, to sagacious if if not cleared then then of course the search remains with with search center and uh we complete the search and then move on to the uh the, the next inquiry Right, great. I think uh, that's uh, uh, the topic well uh, well covered. Um, we have a few more minutes left, so maybe I can ask you for your closing remarks, uh, uh, starting with Anand. Uh, in terms of uh, you know, if you have any closing remarks on on this particular topic, in terms of uh, what you advise uh, companies to to do as next steps uh, subsequent to uh, to what they learned here. So please uh, feel free to share that. Yeah, Fez, I uh, I can see a couple of uh, questions here. So let me. Uh, do you mind if I just just take them? I see it in the questions panel. Yeah, sure. 
So, so, so the first question here is someone has asked, you know, can the slides be provided to the attendees and can I share it with others in my firm? So, uh, yeah, I think at least the link to this recording will anyways be, uh, will be provided to you and, and please feel free to share it. Uh, as a standard process, the, the PPTs, I'm not sure if, if they are sent out, but we'll be uh, happy to, you know, uh, send that out. Uh, we, we'll take a note of, you know, who this question was from and we'll send that out. Uh, and I see another question, which is about, uh, uh, I think it's a direct question asking, do you guys have an export control screening tool as well? So, so uh, I can answer that. Uh, there are two modes of implementation we, we discussed, you know, first one, being uh, uh, a company's in-house screening tool that enables screening at the time of invention submission or by the IP department. Uh, now, we do not have such a tool uh, of ourselves, but such tools do exist in the market. And we work with several companies, uh, as I mentioned, including uh, big companies, Fortune 500s, who, who outsource searches outside of the US and they have a screening process that's implemented in-house uh, as a part of them you know, invention submission workflow. So there are definitely tools out there. Uh, you know, we, we can have a discussion and, and, and guide you uh, to those tools, but we don't have those tools ourselves. Uh, but we do, you know, the second method is the one that I've been, that Ben and Paz were discussing earlier, which is like engaging a, a export control agency. Uh, now that can also be uh, a very streamlined workflow uh, you know, uh, after having discussions together, uh, it, it can be created in a way that uh, the invention disclosures from uh, from your side, they go to this agency. And then this agency does the determination of control uh, and the NLR ones go to sagacious, non-NLR go to uh, search center. And all this as in, when you send the inventions out to this agency, you can be rest assured that it's going to the right party and you know whatever the cost differences for each of the search you've agreed to that and you know it it, it can simply be processed that way as well uh, but again we, we we can implement that but we don't have a search tool of ourselves yeah uh, perhaps you wanted me to give a closing remark but i ended up taking these questions so i think yeah uh, it's good. I think uh, uh, we we will move to Ben if he has any closing remarks, and then uh, um, probably we just um, go ahead and 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 thank everyone and close for the day. Ben, do you have any closing remarks for the? Uh, yes, I'll be quick. Um, I, I would just like to reiterate that the uh, the vast majority of of searches involve NLR, uh, no license required uh, technologies. But even with that said. Um, I would encourage um, our attendees to inquire of providers of whether they have an export control compliance process in place uh, to address these address these important questions. And um, and with that, I'd, I'd also like to say uh, thank you again for for having me on the uh, the webinar today. Thank you. Great, then uh, thanks uh, Anand, thanks uh, Ben for, for this uh, wonderful session. Um, I'm sure our listeners had uh, great takeaways from this session. 
and uh, we'll be uh, and they will be able to use several of these pointers when working on innovations uh, you know in in their businesses and uh, we have not been able to cover uh, some of the questions that we received from the audience they were more logistical like the ppt etc so we'll we'll take care of them uh, post uh, uh, the webinar uh, i would like to thank all uh, the attendees uh, who helped us start on time and finish on time as well uh, we highly appreciate that and thank you so much uh, please uh, join us on our next uh, webinar. This webinar is part of a series of uh, uh, webinars which we will be hosting around, uh, uh, you know, searching, um, uh, patentability searching, um, and, and uh, export control uh, being an important aspect of that. We covered it in the first uh, instance, and then we have uh, uh, similar kind of uh, webinars coming up for. Uh, you know, uh, contemporary uh, patentability searches um, and contemporary uh, invalidity and landscape searches, where we are going to talk uh, more in detail about uh, uh, mixed approaches on conducting these kind of searches. So, uh, uh, invite you to to those uh, webinars as well. And uh, thank you again for for joining us, and have a great day ahead. Thanks a lot.